he goes through here in chapter 3, way before the Red Sea, we might be able to better understand doubt and our concept of doubt. I want to challenge some of you this morning to think about doubt perhaps in a different way. And as I often do at youth group on Wednesday nights, um, <laughs> we're in business. As I often do at youth group, I want to start with a question because Jesus asked lots of questions. So that's how I like to teach is ask a question. Sometimes Jesus answered with more questions. But this morning the question is, who am I, but with an addendum, who am I in my doubt? Perhaps, Lord willing, we will answer that question together. But first, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, blessed is your name. We sang that this morning. And we call upon you as we read your word, as we look to your truth. Speak to us, Father. Help us see who you are so that we can better understand who we are. There are a lot of noises and voices out there in the world trying to tell us who we are. But you've got something for us right here in the beginning in Exodus chapter 3. Help us see that this morning, Father. Give us eyes to see and ears to listen. That we might see our need for you and who you tell us that we are. We thank you, Father, for this word, this truth. Help us treasure it and move amongst us as we dissect it together. It's in Jesus' name, his holy name, a rock, a name that unchanges, we pray these things. Amen. So at the end of the book of Genesis, God's people are at a pretty favorable position. They are growing in number. Some of what God has promised Abraham is already coming true. God's people are multiplying rapidly. But then a new king enters the stage, and he is feeling threatened by this. He sees God's people growing in number, and he's worried that if a war breaks out, he's going to be in trouble. He's going to be outnumbered. And so what does this king do? What's his big plan? What does he decide to do? He enslaves the people. Who is this king? His name is Pharaoh. That's his plan, to enslave the Hebrew people, keep them oppressed, keep them at bay, so that he has the power. And so into this story enters Moses. Moses is born into this community of God's people when they are experiencing the height of their oppression, 400 years of slavery. And in comes Moses here. And as he's born, Moses' mother, she wants something different for her son, doesn't she? If you know chapter 2 of this book, you know what I'm talking about. She wants a better life for her son. She wants, if you will, a new life. And so what does she do? She places her son in a basket and essentially floats him down the Nile River, hoping, praying that by some miracle her son will survive, hoping that by some miracle Moses might live. And if you were this a couple of weeks ago, Angel already spoiled it for us. That's okay. Moses does live, doesn't he? God answers her prayer, and he guides this basket to safety. And of all the places it could have ended up, going down the Nile, where does baby Moses end up? But in the backyard of the Pharaoh's daughter's house. Pharaoh's daughter eventually takes this little boy in as he's nursed, and she takes Moses in as her own and raises him. And Moses grows up having everything. He has all the treasures of Egypt, all that anyone could have imagined and wanted. Moses had it. 
But as he grows up, Moses begins to realize that not as all as he thought it was. Not all was right with the world. One day, as a 40-year-old man, he witnessed an Egyptian man beating a slave pretty severely and overcome with anger, perhaps in a need for justice, but also out of rage, Moses attacked that man. We often leave this out of the Sunday school lesson. Maybe there's reasons for that. But Moses not only attacks this man, but he kills him. We often forget this about the great Moses. He took a life at the age of 40 years old. He breaks one of the Ten Commandments. He hasn't even received those yet. And not only does he kill this man, but he buries the body to hide it. The great Moses, a murderer at the age of 40. He's 10 years my senior. And so eventually, news starts to spread about this murder, and eventually it reaches Pharaoh, and Moses feels forced to flee. He has to run. And so he goes out into the wilderness, out to Midian, out into the middle of nowhere, and Moses chose to run from his problems rather than deal with them. Sounds a lot like you and me sometimes. Oftentimes, doesn't it? And while out there in hiding, living a life that he probably thought was meaningless, Moses is weighed down with the guilt of killing someone, taking a life. And he has left his still enslaved people back there in Egypt, but he's gone. Moses, nonetheless, gets married, starts a family, becomes a shepherd for nearly another 40 years. But then, here in chapter 3, God calls out to Moses. I watched the animated film The Prince of Egypt a lot as a child. It has a great score by Hans Zimmer if you want to give it a listen. In that animated film, I never understood that Moses was nearly 80 years old that we're, we're about to read together. He doesn't look 80 in that animated film. So often Hollywood gets Bible wrong. We need to go to the truth for the, for the source here. He's 80 years old. Someone this morning needs to hear that. Maybe somebody listening to this at some point online needs to hear that. If you are... 15, if you're 27, my sister turned 27 yesterday, maybe you're 58, maybe you're 80, maybe you're 92, however old you are, hang on, brother. Stay with me, sister. You're not too far gone. It's not too late for you. Moses doesn't get called by God till he's 80 years old. Put that in perspective. And here at the burning bush, God calls to Moses here in chapter 3. I want to read to you first verses 1 through 10. Starting here in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God, also known as Mount Sinai. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He, Moses, looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed and Moses said, maybe to himself, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned? The bush is burning, but it hasn't turned to ashes yet. Moses is like, I got to go check this out. I think we can understand that. Verse 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he, Moses, said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. 
Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Can we agree this morning that Moses is quite an odd pick? Dare I say it? We see this pattern throughout Scripture, throughout history. God takes those that are meek, those that are humble, and what does he do? He elevates them. I want us to think about Moses this morning and what qualifies him to become what will be the greatest old prophet in the Old Testament. Moses is going to be this conduit between God and the Israelite people. He is going to be the great Moses. He's going to be there at the transfiguration when Jesus eventually does that incredible work there on the mountain thousands and thousands of years from now. Let's think about the qualifications that Moses has together this morning. I want to review what makes Israel's exodus leader here. Number one, must be a Jewish member of Egyptian royalty. Check, Moses has that. Two, must commit capital murder. He's got that in spades. That's Exodus 2, 12, and 15. Number three, Moses has to live in obscurity as a fugitive for nearly 40 years. Check, he's definitely got that one. That's Exodus 2, 15 and 17, for those that want to look at that later. And number four, he has to be a terrible public speaker. We're not going to read that this morning, but if you look at Exodus 4, verse 10, that's the excuse Moses gives. I'm not a very good public speaker. Those are the qualifications for the greatest Old Testament prophet in history. Have you ever thought about that this morning? I'm picking fun, but in all seriousness, I love what God does here. Do you? Do you see it this morning? I love how God prepares Moses for ministry. It's unbelievable. Notice this with me. Moses, Moses sorry, is granted 40 years of plenty. He has everything. Luxury. He lives there in the Pharaoh's palace, and he gets it all. He had. And then what happens? God lets it all be taken away from him. He loses it all. For 40 years, he's living a meaningless existence, our world would tell us today, out there in the desert doing nothing with his life. Yeah, maybe he's found love. He's got a father-in-law who's pretty cool, but he's basically living there, and he has not. He has nothing. I love this, because what does Moses gain in those first 40 years? Have you ever thought about it? Moses gains wisdom and education, something he would never have gotten as a Hebrew slave alongside his brothers and sisters. He gains wisdom. He understands how the world works. God lets him experience that in the first 40 years. 
In the second phase of his life, what happens? You and I, we might think, not a whole lot. He does nothing. He's just caring for sheep. But that's what God wants him to do for the next 40 years because eventually caring for sheep will allow Moses to care for people. So our God doesn't want just a king ruling over people, wearing a crown and a scepter, commanding people. He wants a shepherd protecting them. Moses learns both. Jesus ultimately protects and cares for us in that way, amen, this morning? That's how Jesus leads, the greater Moses would lead. That's the kind of kingship that led him to the cross, which we just celebrated at that table. Kind of sacrificial shepherd-like love that Jesus has for us. But back to Moses here. His story is inspiring. As a young person, I remember many days watching that film that Angel showed us a couple of weeks ago, The Ten Commandments. I watched it all the time with my grandparents. I loved the story of Moses. But I want us to put ourselves in the shoes the sandals, rather, of this man, the burning bush. I got a question for you this morning. Would you have felt qualified to confront Pharaoh? Honest question. Would you have felt qualified to confront Pharaoh and demand the release of his entire slave labor force? That is what God is asking of him in verse 10 when he says, come. I want to send you back to the place that you ran from, the place that you never wanted to go back to, you're going to go back and confront Pharaoh. Sound good? It's like mission impossible. But God is asking that of Moses here in verse 10, chapter 3. God is asking Moses to lead during a profound crisis. And I want you to ask yourself this morning some other questions. Even though last week we learned it was so good, the word from Solomon, we often, what did he say? Think with our feelings, decide with our emotions. Let's keep that in mind. But I just want, what do you think Moses thought about himself in this moment? And more importantly, what do you think Moses thought about God here? We don't know a whole lot about his dealings with God before this moment. We're not really sure what his relationship status with God is or if there was one truly until this chapter. I'm going to keep all this in mind as we read the rest of this passage together. There's more here for us. And there's more to go back to, too, but... I want to read verses 11 to 15 from Exodus chapter 3. In verse 10, God has just said, Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people out of Egypt. In verse 11, But Moses said to God, Who am I? Question we're all asking ourselves this morning. Who am I that I should send them? Who am I that I should go? to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He, God said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this very mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Verse 15, God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. 
brothers and sisters, I think one of the most profound, illuminating, mystifying, mind-blowing things in all of the Bible is right here in this chapter, what we just read together. Did you catch it this morning? Have you read this story before for yourself? I think it's one of the most important things that we'll ever learn about our God, and he gives it to us right here in chapter 3. It's one of the most profound things he's ever said about himself. Don't miss it. God tells us three things here about himself. I'm going to highlight them for you. First, Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He didn't say that was his name. We're going to get there. He said, in essence, before you worry about my name, how I stack up with all these other fake, by the way, idols and gods out there in Egypt, before we deal with that, just revel in this. Be amazed by this. I am who I am, period, mic drop. God just gives him this to start. Be stunned by this. I absolutely am. I've always been. I always will be. I am who I am. We call him the great I am. Amen. He's not given him his name yet. He wants to get him his being. Second, the rest of Exodus 3.14, he said, add this, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. He's still not giving us his name. He's holding out a little longer. And I can't take credit for this. I was reading a commentary by John Piper, and he had this great expression, so I'll, I'll give it to you. I wish I could have come up with this myself. John Piper says, here, he, God, is building a bridge between his being and his name. I think that's helpful. Here, God is building a bridge between his being and his name. He's preparing Moses for it. He simply says, I am, has sent me to you. The one who absolutely is, is going to send you. And then lastly, I think one of the most profound things you're ever going to read here, Exodus 3.15. God said this to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, in Hebrew, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Finally, God gives us his name. First time you're ever going to find Yahweh in Scripture, it's right here. My Bible has it, I think I had it on the screen that way, in all caps, Lord. Lord. But in Hebrew, it would have sounded something like Yahweh. It's the first time we're given his name. It's almost always translated as Lord in all caps in the English Bible, but it would have sounded something like Hebrew. Are we 100% sure? No. Why? Because there weren't really vowels yet. But we're fairly certain it would have sounded like Yahweh. We spell it Y-A-H-W-E-H. Yahweh is built on the word for I am. So every time we hear the word Yahweh or the short form, which we sing every time we say hallelujah, praise Yahweh, every time you see Lord in the English Bible from now on, maybe you'll think there's God's name. There's his formal name, Yahweh. What an amazing truth. He gives us his name here and he tells us who he is. But back to Moses here. How does Moses respond to Yahweh here? He's just told him to come. I want to send you back to Egypt. You're going to confront Pharaoh. He replies by saying, please send someone else. This is the response of Moses. He not only feels, but I think knows he is too weak to do what God is asking him. God's assigned to do something far greater than he ever thought. We are often given way more than we can handle, too, you and I, aren't we? 
so often I hear this verse taken out of context and it's abused, so I thought I'd bring it up this morning. It's this verse right here, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I often hear Christians misuse this verse. I thought I'd bring it up to your attention this morning. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, comma, but, the verse continues, doesn't stop there, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. I often hear Christians say, God will never give you more than you can handle. God is never going to give you more than you can handle. Maybe you've said that before. And I think in good faith, most times, maybe not always, but most times, I think in good faith, this is what they mean to say. God will never give you more than he can handle because he can handle anything. He'll never give you more than he can handle. There sometimes will be temptation, but he will give us the ability to endure it. He will go through it with us. So often I hear this verse taken out of context. You can make the Bible say anything you want, but here, that's not what it's saying. Moses has got way more than he can handle. I think we can agree on that this morning. In his own strength, Moses is not going to be able to fulfill this task. He won't be able to do it. Have you ever felt like that? I've felt like that. I have a tendency to feel it now more in my almost middle age, I guess. I have young people that tell me I'm old. I don't know. I don't feel old. But um, more than when I was their age, a teenager, you're invincible. You can do anything. You know it best. Get out of my way. I know what I'm doing. As I'm getting older now, I'm in tune with my weaknesses a whole lot more, what I can and cannot do. And I'm much more in tune with my walk with Christ. I have ministry and leadership failures now that weren't on my resume originally. I've got family failures over here. I've got friend failures over there. Do some of you have those too? Often I find these failures on my own because I think I can do it all myself. And as I've done almost eight years of youth ministry here, I can tell you that's no way to lead. You have to have a team. You have to have help. You can't do it yourself. Moses has to learn that's no way to lead. He's been a shepherd for 40 years. It's prepared him quite a bit, more than he thinks. I can relate to Moses here, and I bet some of you could too. He'd rather wander off with his flock of sheep at Horeb through the quiet hills rather than take up God's assignment. I didn't necessarily feel qualified to take over a youth ministry a couple of years ago. Moses clearly does not feel qualified here. But again, feelings, we've got to keep those in mind. Moses didn't feel qualified. He had a long list of objections to God. If you want to see that for yourself later today, read Exodus 3.13 all the way to chapter 4, verse 12. Moses has got plenty of excuses for God why someone else should be the guy. God, there's got to be somebody else out here in the desert, somebody else out here in Midian that can do this better than me. God says, no, you're it. And when God wouldn't budge because God is a rock. We sang that this morning. Our God is a rock. He is unchanging. Unlike the world, they change their mind like we change underwear. Pardon the expression. God never changes. He's a rock. He's consistent. When God won't budge, Moses finally says, verse 13 of chapter 4, he finally comes around and says, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Please send someone else. Moses tried to convince God that he wasn't the man for the job. He told God he wasn't smart enough, he wasn't persuasive enough, he wasn't a good speaker. He wouldn't be able to convince Pharaoh to let all these people go. 
Moses was terrified to confront Pharaoh. He didn't want to go back there. Moses protested, but God promised to be with him every single step of the way. So you see this this morning about us. We often protest, but our God always promises. We often protest, and we want a different way, but God promises. We complain, but God remains the same. God assured Moses when he doubted himself, despite Moses' past and his insecurities. What I don't know if it's often mentioned in this passage, but I want to bring it to light this morning. At the burning bush, I think we see Moses' doubt. Thomas is usually the chief one we go to. Shame on doubting Thomas. We look at him as the chief example, but way before him, Moses doubts right here at the burning bush. I think, Moses, I think doubting Thomas often gets a bad rap in some respects, but that's another sermon. We see Moses doubt his skills and abilities here, but that doesn't stop our God. Not at all. Here we see God's desire to use Moses and God's ability to work despite Moses' deficiencies. Brothers and sisters being used by God this morning, and I mean that word used in the best case of the word. The word used, like the word love, is often destroyed by our world today. I, th I think the word used has a negative connotation to it now, but I mean it in the best sense of the word. Being used by God doesn't require a resume. It doesn't require a GPA that's very high. It doesn't require a certain title or job position. It doesn't retire, require money. It doesn't require a certain background, and it certainly doesn't require a life that's perfectly put together. If anyone this morning knows what a perfectly put together life is, please find me afterwards. I want to know what that is and how I get it. Jesus. We're fooling ourselves if we think we could live perfect. Only one man ever lived perfect. His name was Jesus Christ, period. That's it. At the burning bush, Moses doubts. He doesn't need an entrance exam to get into this. I think we know better. We have to look through all the social media posts and all the IG photos, all the tweets or X's, whatever they're going to be called now, um, all that stuff. Comparison, I tell this to students now and then, comparison is the great kingdom killer. And you and I, we're living in a great time of comparison right now. I can easily go on this device and see what people have and what I have not. It's real easy. Comparison's the great kingdom killer. Every family represented in this room, as I look across, all those that listen to this later, if they listen to this, none of you are perfect. None of your families are perfect. They're all a mess. I include myself in that. There's no such thing as a perfect family. It was designed to be perfect, but there's no perfect family at the moment. Comparison will kill us. But that's okay. God asks us to simply say yes and promises to be with us through it all. Notice in this passage that we just read together, Moses is never told by God, hey, Moses, before I send you off to Egypt, I need all of your questions gone. Or Moses, before I send you back to Pharaoh, all of your doubts got to be 100% extinguished. I don't read that here. God doesn't tell him that. God simply says, come, I will be with you. Doubts didn't stop God from accomplishing huge, impossible, water-parting plans through Moses. We don't often teach sound theology regarding doubt here in the Capital C Church. I think doubt is often this taboo topic. 
we leave off to the side amongst some others. And if you're a doubting Christian, shame on you. You don't have enough faith, we're told. And then when questions come and the church won't answer them, where do people go? They go elsewhere. That's why young people are leaving the church today. That's what I'm dealing with every Wednesday night. It's not because of doubt. It's because they don't have a voice to answer these things. I want to share a quote with you in a minute. One of the most powerful quotes I've ever heard. But first, I want to say this. Our God doesn't want us to linger in doubt, though. I want to be careful here. Some of us, I don't want to ruffle any feathers here. Make no mistake about it. Jesus does not want us to live in doubt. He doesn't want us doubting him. That's the sign of unfaithfulness. That's the sign of a Christian teetering on the edge. That believer is probably going to falter. They may or may not leave their faith entirely. We have to look at the difference between unbelief and doubt. Um, but one of the most powerful and helpful quotes that I've ever heard, it, it informs everything I do every Wednesday night when I'm doing ministry. It comes from a woman named Kara Powell. She runs the Fuller Youth Institute in Pasadena, California. They're a branch of the Fuller Theological Seminary. They're involved in all sorts of cutting-edge youth-based research. So you could see why a youth pastor like me is interested in that. Her team is made up of pastors and ministry leaders, researchers, and parents. She's one of them. She's a parent herself. And if there's any teens in this room this morning, they've probably heard me share this quote before. I can't forget it. I remember in the spring of 2020, like, like Moses, we don't probably want to go back there. He didn't want to go back to Egypt. Some of us probably don't want to go back to March of 2020. A hard time for so many. But I remember in 2020, my predecessor, Josh Smith, and I were talking to students about, you guessed it, doubt. It was the first time we ever did a topic on doubt before. Way back in the summer of 2019, I remember our predecessor picking the month of March to be the month we do doubt. There was no crystal ball. We had no way to know what would happen, that the world would change. But I remember in that month, we're walking students through doubt, this topic, questions, trying to invite them to ask questions. And this quote came up, and so I have to share it with you. I don't have it on your notes, but you might want to jot it down. Carol Powell says this about doubt. It's not doubt that's toxic to faith. It's silence. It's not doubt that's toxic to faith. It's silence. I remember that Wednesday, I think it was the 18th, some friends and I remembered that the, uh, we looked at social media and saw that the March Madness had been canceled. And right then and there, we knew something's wrong. Something's going to change tomorrow. Something's not right. And sure enough, as the week went on, the entire world shut down, and you and I know what happened next. But this quote has informed a lot of what I do. It's not doubt that's toxic to our faith. It's unexpressed doubt. When we bottle it up, when we don't bring it to the surface, we don't talk to God about it, which Moses does here, by the way. He does the right thing. Maybe he doesn't know it, but he does bring his concerns to God quite a bit. When we don't give our questions a voice, that's when we stay stuck in it. And that doubt then becomes unbelief, which I think is what we're all worried about in the church. This is what's causing young people and old to walk away from the church today. That's what research is showing. So I'm trying to encourage my students every chance I get to ask questions. Jesus did it all the time. Paul has tons of questions in the New Testament. Maybe some of you listening this morning are rattled or disagreeing with me a little bit, but I want us to hear this clearly. I think we can all agree here. 
Just like God promised Moses, we can trust that Jesus' presence will always be with us if we just call on his name. There's no doubt about that. Trusting the presence of Jesus in your life is a powerful way to push past your doubts and your failures and your mistakes. The Lord invites you to see this about you this morning. The question was, who am I in my doubt? I purposely put those bulletins in the first person because I'm talking about you this morning. Number one, oops, this is who you are. When I doubt myself, God can still use me. That's who you are this morning. When I doubt myself, God can still use me. I brought something with me this morning, a device from my home. I'm praying someone knows what this is. I'm old enough to know what this is, but I'm praying somebody knows what this is here. It's not plugged in. If you're listening to this online at some point, I'm sorry, you won't be able to see this. What is this? Someone tell me. It's a vinyl player. It's a record player. It plays vinyl. My device is special because my sister got me this a couple Christmases ago. It does play CDs, which is my favorite format. We can agree to disagree on that. Some of you like the warm, crackly sound of the vinyl. I get it. CD's a little better, technically, quality-wise. This plays Bluetooth. This plays FM radio. I can play cassette tapes. Does anyone know what those are? I remember having cassette tapes as a kid. I'm born 92, okay? I had a couple cassette tapes. And this can play, you know, aux. I can plug a cable into this and play whatever I want. This can do it all. I brought a record player with me. The record player was originally called the gramophone. It was invented in 1887 by a man named Emil Berliner. Hope I said his name right. And it was designed to produce sound by obviously a needle dropping on this spinning circular disc, which we would eventually call a vinyl. It allowed people to create an atmosphere of music that helped them express their feelings. I'm sure a lot of you to this day this is your favorite format of listening. You like that crackly, warm sound. I do too, but I like the CD a little bit more. My CD collection's pretty ridiculous at home. When, in a world where we're streaming and no longer there are CDs, I'm irrelevant now, but that's okay. I can't imagine most of you think about this as I do, so I'll just bring this up this morning. I want you to think about this with me this morning. Anytime we turn on music, we are essentially creating a soundtrack for that moment. Have you ever thought about that? Most of you probably haven't because you don't listen to film scores like I do in my leisure time. Every time we turn on the radio, we put on Spotify or Apple Music. Anytime you have people in your house and you have music on, you are creating a soundtrack for that moment. You ever thought about that? And when we want to change our environment so often, what do we do? We change the music. I don't think there's a person here that doesn't like music. Music is, in so many ways, the universal language. I'm someone that plays an, an, an instrument. I understand music has a way to touch the soul that really not much else can. Music, I think, if anything, it actually helps confirm God's existence, but that's another sermon entirely. I want to think about how we change the song. Like when you're in a sad mood, you just went through a breakup, you've been dumped, something bad happened, what do we do? We often put on sad music and we crank it to 11 and that's where we sit. We like dwell in this. Or on the flip side, if you're from Buffalo like me, we get like three glorious short months of summer. Three, maybe. Four if we're lucky. All right, we're living through it right now. Otherwise it's winter the whole rest of the year, it seems like. When it's summertime, what do we do? We have the windows down. If you can afford a sunroof, I can't. Maybe you got the sunroof open. 
and you've got different music cranked to 11, and you're out there driving down the street, and life is good, right? We're in a good mood. We play our favorite songs. We all have a song that we go to. There's a song, actually, on one of these records up here. If I was to put it on, I can think of my father instantly. Or maybe some of you, you put on a certain song, you can remember a place, a time, a moment in time. Music is interesting like that. And I think so often, this is similar to how our beliefs about ourselves and our God work too, just like music. Many of us have a song that plays when we screw up or we fail. And that seems to be on loop an awful lot. I want you to think about this. Because what the story of Moses shows us is that when circumstances get tough and we're feeling useless, God's presence invites us to change the song in a manner of speaking. God wants to use us. Two questions for you to think about. I know a lot of questions I'm asking this morning, but stay with me. Two questions for you this morning. For God, really, when you doubt yourself. If you're doubting God or yourself at any point in the future, two questions. Number one, what quote-unquote record is playing in my life right now? Maybe it's this record, the record of self-confidence. You think you can do it all yourself, and this is what you've been playing day after day. And you think that you're going to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, and I'm just going to figure it out. I don't need anybody. I've been there. I remember going off to college thinking, God, I don't need you. I'll do this myself. Maybe that's the record you've been playing this morning. Maybe it's self-confidence. Maybe some of you have this record playing. It's loneliness. Ignore the actual vinyl. Okay, this is a score from Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. No one's going to listen to that but me. All right? Lonely, good music. Loneliness. Maybe that has been the record you've been playing in your life. I know a lot of students, when we came out of COVID, they felt lonely. They probably still feel lonely all the time. There's no reason, there's no actually surprise to me that suicide and depression are at an all-time high for young people. You know why? Because we had three years of isolation. They lost social skills. They couldn't talk to each other. I would have lost my mind going to school like that. Loneliness is what lots of people are living in. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's this one. I actually picked a nice red Christmas vinyl for this one. Anger, Michael Buble, great Christmas album. You got to play that at Christmas time. All right, maybe it's anger that you've been playing. Maybe you're angry at someone this morning. Angry when you're on the way out today with the kids to get to church on time. Maybe anger is the record that seems to keep playing for you. This is a good one. Not really. Maybe it's addiction. I've been at this church long enough to know there are many that have had this record on at some point in their life. For some, maybe it seems to be on loop and they can't get it off. Addiction. This is a tough record to stop. There's more. What about this one? Depression. Maybe this is the record you or someone you know has found themselves in. Doesn't seem to be a way out. Or what we're really talking about this morning, maybe it's this one, self-doubt, like Moses. Maybe you've been stuck in self-doubt, thinking, God, there's no possible way you could use me. I don't know what I'm here for. Why am I still breathing? I want you just to think about what record is playing in your life this morning. That's that first question. We're also full in this church of men and women who all have different gifts and talents. I want you to think about that this morning, too. All these people that we struggle together with this thing called sin. I think there are family members of mine, friends of mine, who think, I could never go into a church. They would never come with me here to Kaz, even though I live in a different place. I'm not from Buffalo. 
I think they think that this is where perfect people go. Nothing could be farther from the truth. This is more like a hospital than anything. It's for sick people. You and I are sick, and our disease is sin. None of those things can make that stop. None of those things can fix that. Can you see that this morning? All these records are just going to keep piling up. There's no way to get rid of them. Not like that. So the second question I want you to think about is this one. With this verse, Romans 10, 13. God made a way for us to get out of this loop, and his name is Jesus. Romans 10, 13 says, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, period. Not might be, not there's a chance, it's a guarantee. You will be saved. There's no reason to question your salvation if you have really trusted and called in the name of Jesus, our rock, Yahweh. We will be saved. And so the second question becomes, what record does God say I should play? Because right now, you and I, we're just looking at what the world tells us to play. These are the records. These are the greatest hits of the world right now. Maybe we don't see that, but this is what's playing. Young people, old people, people in the middle like me, all of us. What does God want us to be playing? I think he wants us to check out this record. It's called trust. He wants us to trust him. He wants us to trust him. Maybe he wants us to give follower a spin. Are there any followers in here? This is also a Frank Sinatra album. Oh, good stuff. Ultimate hits. <laughs> We're not throwing that one on the floor. Hold on. <laughs> follower. Maybe some of us need to try this record. Love this morning. And I don't mean the sensual love. We get confused what love means, like the word use. I mean the agape, sacrificial, Jesus-like love, Christ-like love. Maybe some of us need to try this record this morning. It's a good one. What we really need is this record. Belief. Belief. And it takes a miracle for this record to play. Belief. That's what God did for Moses here. By telling him not who Moses was. Notice, God tells Moses who he is. He doesn't affirm self at all, which goes so against our culture today. And that's why young people and old and me in the middle were confused because the world is all about self. What feels good in the moment, let's ride it. Nope, doesn't work anymore, we'll switch to something else. No, God says, believe God wants us to change the song, but not by affirming self, but by knowing him. See, it's with Christ that our song changes. All of us, we're going to be stuck in an endless loop unless we meet Jesus. He's what changes our song. We accept Jesus as the Son of God and have faith. We're given a new song. I want to help, help you see the big picture here. And it really connects to what Brother Angel shared a couple weeks ago. Through Moses, God parts the Red Sea. Incredible feat. We'll probably never see that again. I say probably. God can do whatever he wants. He parts the Red Sea through Moses. But can you see the bigger picture? Through Jesus, what does he part? He parts the veil. The curtain is torn. Sin is parted. You and I can be with God forever now because of Jesus. That's the good news. God came near to Moses here at a bush. He came near to us, you and me, through Jesus. And through the good news, 
Sin and death no longer have the last word. That's good news. Some of us need to play that this morning. I know I asked us to put ourselves in Moses' sandals earlier, but if we want to go even deeper, I'm not finished with that question, who am I in my doubt? If we want to go even deeper, let me close, or at least begin to close with this. I think we have more in common with the bush than we do Moses. Like Moses, God has a plan for your life and mine. No mistake about it. But none of us will ever be at the Red Sea and watch it part like Moses. That's not our calling. You and I, we are not going to be the greatest Old Testament prophet in the Bible. That's not our calling. That was Moses's. None of us are going to receive the Ten Commandments there at the top of Mount Sinai in the Ark of the Covenant like Moses. None of us are going to be taking these people through the wilderness as they're complaining the whole way, protesting the whole way, God continues to promise. None of us are going to have that role. I think we have more in common with the bush than we do Moses, and here's why. Who are you this morning? Like that weak, frail, simple bush, I can become a miraculous dwelling place for the great I am. That's who you are this morning. This bush without God, it's not blazing. It would never give light to anything. If we have God dwelling inside of us, we will give a light that the world cannot mistake, a light that's unique to everything else that's out there. We might often be put through fiery trials, but we won't be consumed like this bush. We can be filled with the presence and likeness of God. Scripture tells us that when we accept Christ, the Holy Spirit enters us. God literally dwells with us. And that's what changes our hearts. That's what changes us from the inside out. You and I are built to be a dwelling place for God. You know that this morning. You treat your body like that, like it's a holy temple for God. That's who you are this morning. It's remarkable. Hope that's helpful or encouraging to someone here this morning. God wants to use you in the best sense of that word. Ask God today what record is playing in your life. Look to how Jesus can change it. Believe. I have another point about who we are this morning. One last one. God knew Moses by name. He repeats his name in this chapter, doesn't he? It's in verse 4. I don't know if you caught it with us. God says, Moses, Moses. Does God stutter? Do you think God accidentally said his name a second time? Did he say it a second time because Moses didn't hear him the first time? It's deliberate. Nothing with our God is an accident. It's a sign of something. We have to remember the Hebrew that our English comes from. When a name was repeated twice, it was a sign of affection and intimacy. Today, if I said Carol, Carol, I'd look like a crazy person. Paul, Paul. They'd be like, what? Back in those days, it was a sign of closeness, intimacy, love. Ten times throughout Scripture, we see this happen. In fact, I wanted to highlight these for you. Abraham, Jacob, Moses here in chapter 3 of Exodus, Samuel, Martha, women, you're included in this, Martha, Simon, Saul, and then Jerusalem. There's eight. The last two are for God himself. I think it's fitting. God gets his name repeated one more than everybody else. Every time a name is repeated in Scripture, they're elevated. It only makes sense that God's name is repeated more often than all the others. 
Lord, Lord, by Jesus in Matthew 7, 21. And then in Matthew 27, 46, as Jesus is bleeding and dying for you and me, sinners like us, he says God's name twice again there. Eloi, Eloi, sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is also who you are this morning. God knows me by name. I hope that by seeing Moses here, it helps you see yourself. God knew Moses by name. Make no mistake about it. He knows every single one of us by name. Every hair on your head. Some of us, every receding hair on our head. I'm grateful I still have all nine. My father lived to 46, so after I get to that moment, Lord willing, we'll see what happens. But he knows you personally, and he cares for you. God has a plan for your life, just like he did for Moses. Imagine the seas that he might part with you. God is with you and wants to use you no matter where you are in your faith journey. Maybe you're good with people. Maybe you're good at math. I'm not. Maybe you're highly organized. Maybe you're empathetic and you're a good listener. Maybe you have a voice. Maybe you can play an instrument. Maybe you're good with your hands. I've seen Russ and a few others in this place do things with cardboard that I could never imagine doing. Maybe you're a good teacher. I just think back to summer Bible camp. I know that was a month ago or a little less than a month ago. But in that five days of craziness, trying to tell young people about Jesus, I see so many gifts on display. People that are organized and have good smiles and good faces, they're down there welcoming people, signing them in. There's people that are teaching some elders, another man, and, and our pastor, Lonnie. Somehow I'm in the ring with those three people who all are wiser than me, all have children, know the word probably way better than I could. They would whoop me in a speed drill. There's people in this place that make snacks and food, and they feed all these people. There are others, and I kind of miss being that person, that are in the thick of it with kids. They're their leaders going from place to place, experiencing it all with the kids. I kind of miss that in some ways. In other ways, maybe not. But. And, of course, we have to have people that lead all of this stuff, like Lisa Milne and some others that have to, like, connect all of us, right? Think about the gifts and the skills that you have this morning and how God might use you, like he used Moses. Moses gave him lots of excuses, but God has promised that he will do this for us. I want to end with this. I think we have our doubts and our weaknesses for a reason. They are perhaps more than our strengths what qualify us to actually serve God, which again is so countercultural today. God is never looking to affirm the world. Nothing teaches us prayerful dependence like failure. Desperation that comes from being assigned to do a task that we can't do it without God. I'm a big movie fan and Ever since I was a small child, I've been enraptured with the story of Star Wars. It's a lot of contention in our world about Star Wars today. Um, I love the story of good and evil and the good and evil that's within all of us. And there's something, there's something there in that story, the hero's journey that's, that we love. And my favorite character has always been Yoda, the oldest, wisest, craziest character in all the movies. Maybe there's something there about me. I just want to be wise like that someday, maybe. Maybe not speak backwards and be kind of strange like he is, but um, I think one of the most profound quotes that Yoda has, it's in the most divisive Star Wars film ever made, 
which was in The Last Jedi, the eighth movie. Either you love it or you hate it. But I love that moment. Luke, this perfect character, seemingly, who beat the Empire, has now failed. He's out there on an island, living out there kind of in exile to a certain way. And his friend Yoda has to come to him, and he tells him the greatest teacher failure is in his typical backward speech. I love that quote. And I think there's truth to that here. Failure is a really great teacher. Humans, you and I, we're impressed with a whole lot of human strengths. This is what impresses our world today. Titles, possessions, how much stuff we have. Sexual conquests, that interests our world today. Pleasures, money, that's what makes the world go round. That's all that people want. But God is only impressed with one human strength, just the one, and that's strong faith. Because faith is a dependence on Yahweh's strength, not ours. Which is why when God calls us into various and diverse roles in his kingdom, I think he always leaves room for some failure. Always leaves some room to show us our weaknesses and how much we need him. How much he is the great I am. The more we understand this, I think the more those opportunities for each of us will become occasions for joy rather than shame rather than us trying to just compare ourselves to each other and dividing. That's the genius of the great I am. So this morning as we close, I want you to remember who you are this morning. There's a lot of voices out there telling you who you are. This is who you really are. When you doubt yourself, you can still be used by God. Like the burning bush, you are a miraculous dwelling place for the Lord. And you are known by Yahweh. You are not forgotten. Who are we? We are loved by God. That's who you and I are. Let's pray. Let's close in prayer. Yahweh, Heavenly Father, how great are you, God? We sang that this morning. You are so great. You can move mountains. You can make seas part. You, you can, you've thought all of this into existence. We're all made here in your image. We're your favorite creation, your masterpiece. Scripture tells us. You love us, even when so often we don't love you and we don't think of you. We're out here chasing the stuff that the world tells us to chase, putting on the songs that the world tells us to play that are good for us, that feel good in the moment. Help us to have belief this morning. Help us to trust you. Help us to follow after you. Help us to love like you love. Help us blind people like the burning bush kind of blinded Moses, kind of caught his eye. Help us catch people's eye for your glory, not ours. We pray, Father, that we would be miraculous dwelling places for you and your spirit until we come home and see you face to face. We pray that we would be used by you in a manner that's designed only by you. Surprise us. And we pray, Father, that most of all that we would remember that we are known by you. Bring us to you so we can know you more. Through your word, through prayer, through the catalysts and other people that you put in our lives. Help us see you and hear you clearly, Father. Yahweh, the great I am. You are who you are, and we love you for it, Father. We thank you for Jesus who came to not part a sea, but part sin to forgive us from our sins because of the blood that he shed on the cross, because of the perfect life that he lived, and because of the resurrection and ascension that took place. 
this is good news for us, sinners like us, that maybe often feel unqualified like Moses here. But you, God, are unchanging, and you know better than us. Your understanding is so beyond ours. And we love you, Father. Help us seek after you in the days to come here. Help us be a light, be a, a burning bush for others so they can know who you are, Yahweh, the great I am. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.